according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 1. We, uh, we're doing our review. We spent three years to teach the book of, Prov- of uh, Hebrews. And uh, last week we did the review on the uh, prologue, verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to cover verses 5 through chapter 4 and verse 16. How about that? So we have the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapters 2, 3, and 4. And O ye of little faith, if you think we can't get through it. This is the portion of the book where we celebrate God's King Son. When we get into verses 5 through 10, we'll be celebrating God's priest son. And of course, it's the same son, it's Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest, and uh, the blessings we have to look at there. So for this week, possibly next week, we'll uh, we'll be doing this review outline, and then uh, it's curious. uh, Can we get through three years in, in five reviews? I don't know, maybe six, maybe seven. Um, when when will Genesis get started? At this point, it's scheduled for as early as um, August 30th and as late as September 13th. So we're in a range there somewhere, Lord willing and, and rapture pending. There is a Genesis series on the way, and uh, we're looking forward to that. But we do want to review Hebrews. So before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you just rejoicing. You are so faithful. You fill our cup. You bless us again and again and again. Your grace never runs out, Father. I thank you for the truth of your word. And for the past three years that we've been studying this uh, this powerful book, I pray that uh, as we study it and review it, that we would live it, understanding it for what it is. Uh, we just thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so for this review session to cover God's King Son, essentially we're taking 38 hours of teaching and giving you a single snapshot, or two if I stretch it to next week as well. Uh, But really classes 11 through 48 are what we're dealing with. And when you think of, just when you think your way through of Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, we have warnings, we have the command for rest. And the dominant themes with uh, our coming King and what He's providing we need to enter into rest. We can't fall short as the wilderness generation fell short. They were redeemed out of Egypt, but they did not enter the land of promise. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And so that gets our attention because we want to be well pleasing to our Father. We don't want to imitate those with whom He was not well pleased and uh, perish in the wilderness, so to speak, as far as the metaphor is applied. And so this is what we deal with here. We start in verse 5, to which of the angels, this is Hebrews 1, 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And we begin the first of dozens of Old Testament quotations throughout the book of Hebrews, including so many from the Psalms, including many from Psalm 2, as we have here, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. And this comes up again and again in these chapters. 
And then the Davidic covenant promise that's made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that gets quoted here as well. With I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So the sonship of Jesus Christ, as promised in, in, and described in Psalm 2, is connected to his role, not only as the son of God, but the son of David, the heir to David, the one that's entitled to the throne of David. And by quoting Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 here in this way, it starts off in a marvelous fashion. But these chapters, chapter 1 and 2, center on the centrality of Jesus Christ and his superiority to the angels. He is superior to the angels in these first two chapters. He's going to be superior to Aaron and the, and the uh, Old Testament priesthood in chapter 3 and 4. But here in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. No angel ever received these statements. No angel ever received, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet. We have not only the statement in verse 5, we also have the statement in verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said? This is not just a, an empty rhetorical question. This is a very specifically rebuke against Satan himself. The fall of Satan, and when you read in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, you see that Satan was dissatisfied with his seating uh, assignment, that he wanted to raise his throne above the stars of God. And Satan was not invited to sit at the Father's right hand. Satan is not the heir of God the Father. And so Satan in his pride and his arrogance and his rebellion, he's looking to replace God the Father and provide for his own heir, his own uh, antichrist, if you will, that uh, should be on the scene any minute now. I tell you, watching current events, we are right around the corner from antichrist as, uh, as I speak. No angel is promised an eternal kingdom. No angel is promised companions. No angel is promised a glorious bride. But Jesus has promised all of them. And so when we work our way through here, we see how all of the Old Testament prophecies were anticipating the coming of Christ. We realize how unique this is, how special this is. Now there were other angels in the Old Testament who were called sons of God, but they were not begotten sons of God. It's a big difference. They were created sons of God and they had son of God ranking, but they were not begotten sons of God. There's only one begotten and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse 8 of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. For the, scepter, for, your, for the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The book of Hebrews also uh, emphasizes the companions, the metakoi, the partakers of Jesus Christ. What we know today in the New Testament as being the bride of Christ, that we are fellow partakers of Him in, uh, in Christ. Uh, all of this comes to uh, Psalm 45. I can bring this up on the screen. I keep forgetting I have this. Psalm 45. This also benefits folks that are watching on YouTube that maybe don't have a Bible at home. All right. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, as David writes this a thousand years before Christ, he has no frame of reference for the bride, for the body of Christ, for anything related to the church. The church is a mystery. It's unrevealed in Old Testament times. And yet, it is foreshadowed, it is hinted at, there's a clue and Psalm 45 contains that clue, actually. Like, who are these fellows? 
the fellows, the companions, the, the friends of the king. They're not the, the, the citizens. They're not the, the, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel that he rules over. Who are his friends? All your garments are fragrant with myrrh of aloes of cassia. Sometimes we sing the hymn, Out of the Ivory Palaces that comes from this passage as well. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So uh, only from our perspective as New Testament believer priests with a New Testament that reveals the church can we then go back to Psalm 45 and we can see this queen that's promised, this queen that's mentioned. And yes, With our hindsight, we can see the church as the queen, but from the Old Testament perspective, not a clue. From the Old Testament perspective, there's no idea where the Messiah is going to obtain his king. Anyway, those are are some amazing studies. Um, But the superiority of Jesus over the angels. This uh, centers on the fact that he was for a time made lower than the angels. And for this we get to our second point, which really encompasses much of chapter 2. The Son of Man was victorious in his time of being made lower. Being made lower. And this sets apart the fundamental principle of Scripture, that when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. Our order of business is the order of humility. This is what resolves the angelic conflict because the fall of Satan and the one-third of angels that followed after him in his tail that followed after that are still at war with God. Their sin was the sin of pride. Their downfall was the self-magnification. The I will, I will, I will five times that Satan declared. And so to magnify yourself is the antithesis of God's plan. We are to humble ourselves and allow God to magnify us in the proper time. Well, the, the best example of humility is Jesus Christ because no one humbled himself more than laying aside his privileges of deity and being born as a, of the virgin, entering into the human experience in the, in the virgin's womb and walking our walk. He identifies with us in our struggles. And so Hebrews 2 Verses 5 through 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that ye remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You ever quote a scripture and can't remember where it comes from? Okay. Just say somewhere. It says in the Bible somewhere. All right. From Psalm 8 is where this comes from. But it's a prophecy of man and specifically the Son of Man and a marvelous title. A marvelous title that the Pharisees hated. They, uh, they could accept Son of David, but they hated Son of Man, I believe, because they understood the Messianic connection there and the, uh, the sovereignty and preeminence that it connected with. But then it says, you have made him for a little while, verse 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. The Hebrew text from Psalm 8 says a little lower than God or than the gods. And this gives us a text criticism puzzle too. But it allows us to understand that the Elohim of Proverbs 8 could be angelic beings and it's interpreted here as such. Making him for a little while lower than the angeloi, the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. 
So if Jesus hadn't submitted to the incarnation, he would not be entitled to this crown. We sang crown him with many crowns. He's not entitled to those crowns unless he humbles himself and fulfills the plan of God. Neither, by the way, are you and I. For the crowns we're, we're working for in faith, we've got to humble ourselves to submit to God's plan for our life and run with endurance the race that's set before us. All right, so you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the work of your hands. You have made, put all things under subjection, uh, under his feet. That's the plan, but the plan is waiting to be executed. We don't yet see it. And uh, that's the, the author points that out here at the end of verse 8. After he wraps up his Old Testament quote, he says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So understand where you live. We live in the church age. We live in the age of conflict. We live in the age when the devil, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We're waiting for the coming kingdom. We're waiting for the millennium. We're waiting for the fullness of time. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't yet see all things subjected to him. It's going to happen, just not until the perfect time. All right, so we have the victory. He was made lower. He humbled himself. Now he is eligible to be exalted, and he will be exalted. But the reason why he humbled himself was so that he could become our high priest, so that he could intercede on our behalf, so that he would understand the testing that we go through. He was made lower and he identified with us and he suffered for us. Verses 9 through 18 here is going to spell this out. And you're going to notice how it was fitting. It was proper. It was necessary for him to be humbled in this way. So verse 9, we, we do see, here's what we do see, him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's another great text for unlimited atonement that the limited atonement people, the particular redemption, particular Baptist people, they've got to deal with this. Because they would say he only died for the elect. But this verse says he tasted it for everyone. For it was fitting for him, appropriate, proper, fitting. For whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. If Jesus doesn't suffer in his first advent, then he's not equipped to do what he needs to do in the resurrection and for all eternity. Same thing with you and me. If we don't suffer right now in this life, if we don't suffer in the church age, then we're not equipped for what the Father has designed us for in the resurrection and for all eternity. Suffering is what perfects us, is what perfects our faith and completes our, uh, our walk with the Lord. So we have it here. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Our Savior was on the cross. He's the one sanctifying us. We are the sanctified ones. And we're brethren with, with Jesus Christ. We have the same Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And then look at the Psalm 22 quote saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a part of the same psalm. It comes from Psalm 22. 
It comes from the same psalm that he quoted, the psalm of crucifixion, the psalm of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't stop with that verse. That's the one that's recorded in the Gospels. I'm convinced he recited the entire thing, top to bottom, in faith, claiming the promises, including this promise of I will proclaim your name to my brethren. This is Jesus Christ on the cross declaring what he will do once this unpleasant business is complete, once he's victorious and says, Tetelestai, it is finished. That after the work of the cross, when he's raised from the dead, he will have a testimony and a testimony to brethren in the midst of the congregation. Usually that's thought of as the congregation of Israel. I think it's the angelic congregation in the heavenly places. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So there are brethren presently in the church age, but there will be children in the fullness of time, in the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus will be provided children. Isn't that interesting to think about? The fact that believers, the thousand generations in the new earth, they're not going to be brethren with you and me and Jesus, sons of the Father. They're going to be sons of Jesus, as Jesus will assume the Father role to those thousand generations. So while he's on the cross, he's celebrating brethren and he's celebrating children. Well, his work in first advent was to identify with us and suffer for us. And we have it and it's seen here. Let me go also to Isaiah chapter 8. Another mention of children that Messiah can speak to. In Isaiah 8, I'll read the whole chapter. (laughs) So God's got a plan and the world has a plan. And without reading the entire chapter, yeah, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, the naming of, yeah, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, I'm not going to get lost in this or the, the review won't happen. Um, but the people have a plan and they think they're going to do it and they get all involved in conspiracy theories <laughs> and God says, all right, forget about it. My plan's better. Well, let's just stick with uh, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. And so they don't know about the church. The church is a mystery, but they do anticipate a time in which the Lord is not exactly dealing hands-on with Israel. As it says here, he's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And so talking about a future captivity, talking about a future setting aside, uh, it's not spoiling the mystery of the church, but it certainly previews it, or it certainly is a clue, a little indicator that a time is coming when God will not have his face directly watching the Jewish people. But then he will resume his plan for the Jewish people. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And so it's a wonderful play. And and the, the studies here in Isaiah where we have the prophet and the children that God gave the prophet You have the promised virgin and the son that God gives the promised virgin. And then we have the Lord himself looking forward to executing a plan, looking forward to a kingdom and children that he will have in his kingdom. And uh, 
more that goes with that as well. Anyway, there's, there's a lot that goes into chapter 2. And I think probably because these things are so deep, I think this is why Hebrews gets the superficial treatment that it gets. And they shy away from the angelic realm, particularly in chapter 1 and 2. And they try to try to accelerate into Mosaic law, which really doesn't get introduced until Moses of chapter 3. But they try to force it back into Hebrews chapter 2 because they're trying to stay away from the angelic issues when there's really no need to stay away from the angelic issues. All right, so back to Hebrews 2 then. I think the last of this here, verses 14 through 18, are greatly encouraging. And it goes well with our Colossians study. So it's not in your notes. By the way, I feel better about racing through at this breakneck speed because you have notes in your bulletin. You've got the outline. If, if I lose you, then just look at that and, and get caught up. All right. Um, but since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. So beyond the spiritual death and the purchasing of our eternal life and the atonement for our sins, he then, having said it is finished, he had more work to do. He had to submit to physical death. He had to descend to Sheol. He had to rise from the grave. He had to provide for a physical resurrection to solve the physical death uh, barrier uh, as well. And he deals with this. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so the devil has a power of fear whereby he can threaten human beings. And, and so many people are caught up in these life and death things of fear. And, and worse, our nation is seeing that today with this virus and all kinds of fear related to all kinds of things. Thankfully, because we have eternal life, we have stability that comes through an eternal perspective. And we know that our adversary is disarmed. So therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And really, what a joy that we have. Not only someone who purchased our redemption, but someone who continuously pleads on our behalf with a frame of reference that identifies with what we're dealing with. He knows our sorrows. He's the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the uh, merciful and faithful high priest. Otherwise, we just have a merciless and, and uh, un, unfeeling high priest. No, he's merciful. He understands. He's lived the life that we've lived. And so his intercession is that much more powerful. Think about it. You know, and this is what I try to encourage folks too when, the, in, when you're going through testing and the, the difficult things that, that, that uh, believers can go through, difficult times that parents can go through, different things if, if for, um, you know, those that have lost a child, I think you know, Ralph and Dorothy that lost their child. And, and these are horrible tests to go through, but God is so faithful to bring us through them and then to use those times of testing so that these believers are now more prepared, more um, suited. They have a, a, a passion and a compassion and a ministry that they can come alongside and, and sacrificially love others and serve others in a, in, in a way unlike you know, folks who haven't gone through that kind of testing before. It makes us tender in these kind of things. So since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those 
who are tempted. And we have this marvelous high priest. What a joy. We see him in almost every chapter of the book. The high priest that prays for us. That prays for us. All right, well this gets us then to chapter 3. And chapter 3 and 4 the the longer, tougher chapters of today's review. But therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And it's really neat the way that all of the doctrine from chapter 2 is now turned to us. Turned to the readers of this epistle, turned to all church age saints. Every last one of us, we are holy brethren. We are partakers of a heavenly calling because we are in Christ, the high priest the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so point three reviews this chapter, the first part of this chapter. We have a warning that comes in this chapter and it centers on being his house, whose house we are. Presently being his house. So let's look at it here because the warning comes in, uh, in these early verses, really verse 6. But the, again, the address is for every believer, every church-age saint. Holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more, that's Jesus, has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. You know, do you you credit the house for building itself or does the, the builder get praised for the glorious house that he built? Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. There's no house that ever builds itself. Just like there's no planet that ever builds itself. There's no universe that just pops into being. All right, it's built. If there's design, then you ask, who's the designer? Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So we can learn from the Mosaic example and we can see a house and we can see Moses' role as a servant. And we understand that it's typology of something to follow. But Jesus, that is Christ, was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are whose house we are. And this is what it comes down to. And so people that get scared with the warning passages, people that get confused with the applications that are found in the, in the book of Hebrews, first of all, they don't bother to ask, is Moses' house the same as Jesus' house? Is, uh, we, we understand the contrast is servant versus son, but we also need to recognize there's two different houses at work here. That Moses never had a part in the house that we're a part of. And, uh, and Jesus doesn't presently have a part in the house that Moses had back in the day. All right, but Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if. So now we have to deal with, well, what is the house? What is the if? And what happens if I stop being a house? <laughs> okay, can I, can I become a house again? So let's understand being a house Being the house of Jesus Christ is not being saved. And we spent the time we spent, I forget how many hours on this. It's operating within our priestly function. That's what the house metaphor speaks to. Remember in the Old Testament, a house could be a a family, a house, a mom and a dad, kids and servants, that's a house. 
A house could be a royal dynasty, the house of Saul, the house of David. You could have a royal dynasty house. But the most common term for house in the Old Testament, the most common metaphor, the house was the house of the Lord. It was a priest, it was a temple. The house is a temple. And so keeping that same metaphor, there's one Moses used, Moses did not set up a dynasty. Moses did not set up a royal house of Moses as a royal dynasty. And uh, his personal family home was something else. No, the house that Moses was associated with as a faithful servant was the house of the Lord. It was the tabernacle. It was the priestly, the place of priestly service. And so in this metaphor, we are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are functioning within or operating within our priestly function on an if basis. Sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't. And if we're not, then we need to get back in fellowship so we can resume our priestly function. This is what it comes down to if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Holding fast our confidence. So it's a contingent reality. Now being saved is not contingent. We're always saved. Once we're saved, we're always saved. We never lose our salvation. But we stop functioning as the house of God when we're carnal. So when you get out of fellowship and you're walking in darkness and you're walking in the light, you're no longer a a functioning priest. You're no longer a part of God's house in in the priestly way. So presently being His house, that's equal to operating within our priestly function. It's contingent upon our being faithful, holding fast our confident, uh, confidence and boast, holding fast our confession. The confession is always linked with our priestly service. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's our confession? Church age believer priest. That's our confession. That's why we don't need the Westminster Confession. We don't need the Synod of Dort. We don't need the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or anything else that's ever been invented in the church age. We have the confession that is believer-priest of the church age. And Jesus Christ is our Apostle and High Priest. This is the confession we hold to. And so again and again we see it. The Hebrews 3.6 is the if but holding fast our confidence. Verse 14. This is where we are uh, taking care and encouraging one another. We don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This has nothing to do with being saved or having eternal life or going to heaven when you die. This has everything to do with being a partaker in Christ partakers of a heavenly calling, the household of God in priestly function. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Again, it's our confession, it's our priesthood, and it's an if. Maybe we will hold fast. Maybe we won't hold fast. Maybe we'll go carnal. Maybe we'll spend a season in darkness. Confess that. Repent. Get back in fellowship. When you are back in fellowship, again, you're a partaker. And your priesthood is available to you once again. You know, isn't that curious? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And he doesn't say then, you know, go through a time of penance and do your Hail Marys and do your, uh, your, your works of, of penance and make up for it. Then eventually you can work your way back into the priesthood again. No. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once we pass that silver laver, we are in the Holy of Holies. I mean, we are back into the priesthood operation from that moment on. What a joy. What a process that we have. So again, it's the high priest. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And I wonder sometimes how well Aaron did, how well his sons did, or any high priest, how well did they do identifying with a typical Jewish believer of uh, the ancient nation of Israel? Because his life really was set apart. His life really was. He didn't have a tribal allotment or a land grant. He wasn't working. Uh, you know, he really was separated from, uh, from his people. I don't know how well the Levitical high priest could identify with a typical Jewish believer in the nation of Israel. But Jesus does. He lived our life and he's tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 6.11 We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So in all of these passages, the warnings are dire. And that's why believers get scared. And you should get scared. But get scared for the right things. Don't be scared of losing eternal life because a trick question, it's eternal. Um, but be scared of, in, in a godly fear of the Lord, your, your carnality that will thwart any priestly ministry. Your carnality that will expel you from the Holy of Holies. You know, we have confidence to enter within the veil because we've been cleansed. But when we defile ourselves with sin, we're back outside the veil again. And we don't want to be there. We're not designed to be there. Our priestly function, we are partakers of a heavenly calling. So if we're in carnality, living in the world, walking in darkness, we're like fish out of water. Our new nature in Christ, we're a heavenly people, partakers of a heavenly calling. So carnality is, uh, is, is, is hostile to that. Hebrews 10, and look at these verses here in Hebrews 10. Not the fear of losing eternal life, but the fear of not functioning in our priesthood. You'll notice verse 19 says, Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. See, nothing has, nothing has to die for us to enter the veil and stand before God the Father. It's a new and living way. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you're out of fellowship, forget about it. You've got to confess. You've got to be restored to fellowship. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In fact, our priesthood, priesthood is grounded upon better promises. Hold fast. Get down to verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. The things you can throw away. Throw away your confidence. Throw away your priesthood. 
My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Going carnal and throwing away your priesthood. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This is our role as believer priests, entering within the veil and standing before not just a Shekinah glory, the very glory of God the Father himself. If, very contingent, all of these if warnings, all of these contingent realities tell us not that we lose our salvation and go to hell when we die, but that we lose our access in the Holy of Holies to God the Father. That's the the great loss. And so we have here the essence of worshiping in spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus told of that woman at the well, that she was all worried about mountains. Did the Jews have the right mountain or did did the Samaritans have the right mountain? Who has the right Pentateuch? Who has the right holy of holies? Who has the right sacrifice? Who has the right priesthood? Well, as far as she was concerned, the Jews have the right answer, not the Samaritans, but that's beside the point because now the Messiah is here. And, uh, and he tells her, John 4, 30, 23, an hour is coming and now is. Okay? An hour is coming, that's the church age, but now is because the Messiah is present among believers right here, right now, talking to this woman. A true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so during his first Advent ministry, you didn't have to go to the temple to worship God. You can travel with Jesus. Same thing in the church age. You don't have to go to a holy mountain. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Pleasing God by faith. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. So as you work your way through these warning passages, understand it's not loss of salvation, it's loss of priestly access. It's loss of functioning as a partaker in Christ. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Not holding fast to our confession. And then we have even more damage that's done when you fall away from the faith and uh, your heart becomes hardened. This is point four. The warning passages are not loss of eternal life warning passages, but loss of abundant life, loss of faith rest, loss of experientially partaking of Christ. And this is what we do in our priesthood. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. What does it mean to partake of Christ? What does it mean to exercise, experientially partake of Christ? I'm glad we went through it the way that we did and taught it the way that we did and came to the conclusions that we came to. Because I think there are inferior approaches to this that um, miss the whole point. Because clearly the prosperity gospel has it wrong. And, uh, and we were talking about that uh, American gospel feature you can see on Netflix now. Um, Christ alone and then Christ crucified. Part two is better than part one. Christ alone is part one about the prosperity gospel. Part two is, uh, is about the, the liberals, progressive Chris, Christianity and, uh, and what uh, the emergent church is doing to destroy uh, evangelical Christendom in, in America. 
Um, I recommend them both. But here's the thing. Identification with Christ is not ruling in the kingdom right here, right now. Because we're not ruling in the kingdom right here, right now. The kingdom's not here yet. The king is sitting waiting for the footstool to be prepared. But what we are doing right here, right now is functioning in a priesthood. And our Savior is the apostle and high priest. And our Savior right here, right now is ever living to make intercession for the saints. And so we need to be ever living to make intercession for the saints. You want to you be a partaker of Christ? Start interceding for the saints. You're never more Christ-like than when you're interceding for the saints. Even when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He, didn't, he never stopped interceding for the saints. That's what we're to do as we're partakers. And we can't do it if we're carnal. So take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, that departs from the Holy of Holies, that re-exits out of the veil and just lives in the darkness of this fallen world. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I love the fact that our Sabbath rest is today. Israel had one day out of seven for their Sabbath rest. Ours is day after day as long as it is called today. For we have become partakers of Christ if, again, we have a contingent. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if we do, if we hold fast, this is what it's about, staying in fellowship, holding fast, keeping our grip on on the head that is Jesus Christ, the beginning of our assurance firm, until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Isn't that great? This is the author of Hebrews quoting David from Psalm 95, referring back to the wilderness generation in the book of Numbers. And here we are now in the 21st century, quoting the first century author of Hebrews, quoting the author of Psalms, quoting the wilderness generation. The patterns are there. We are without excuse. How many examples can we be given? So the warning passage is not loss of eternal life, but loss of abundant life. The faith rest life. The, the failure to enter into rest, what we get into in chapter 4 in the next point. The um, failure to, uh, to operate within the veil, within our priestly capacity. You know, standing before the throne of grace, there's no better place to be. That's where we obtain grace and find mercy to help in time of need. And we have confidence to approach that throne of grace. Are we going to throw away our confidence that has such a great reward? This is, uh, this is what it is. Don't throw it away. Keep holding on to Christ. Keep staying within the veil. Continue in your priestly function, interceding for the saints, one another, day after day as long as it is called today. That's what these warning passages are all about. All right. And then what about entering into rest? Entering into rest. This too gets abused. This too gets... uh, Because they view entering into rest as going to heaven when you die. Wrong. All right. That's going to happen. But this is an imperative we're supposed to obey all day, every day. And I'm not supposed to go to heaven when I die all day, every day, but I am supposed to enter into rest all day, every day. Enter into rest, resting from my works as God rested from His. It's the biggest clue. All right. So we get to Hebrews 4. 
So let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering into rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Okay? This is a warning, this is a, a danger that we can fail to live the faith rest life. You want to give it the Barack of vocabulary? There you have it. Failure to live the faith rest life. Failure to identify the Father's working in and through you for His good pleasure. It's the way we taught it. I think it's a nice expansion to Colonel Theme's Faith Rest booklet. But there you have it. All right. But let us fear. A promise remains. You can come short of it. And uh, the reason why is because of faith. If we don't unite the, word, the promises of God with faith, then, uh, then we fall short. Now keep in mind, nobody in the wilderness went back to Egypt. They died in the wilderness as a redeemed people. They did not God didn't repart the Red Sea and push them back into Egypt. So that we're clear, nobody loses salvation. Even those that fail to enter into rest are still a redeemed people. They're just a redeemed people with whom God is not well pleased. We want to be a redeemed people with whom God is well pleased. Entering into His rest. And we do this today. We do this all day, every day. This is not something we're hoping to do by going to heaven when we die. And it's not a definition of spiritual maturity. It's not a definition of advanced to super grace spiritual maturity. A baby believer can enter into rest so long as they live by faith a doctrine that they've studied and become convicted of. A baby believer can faith rest. So within our capacity... We, we live by faith. We give God the glory for the work that He's doing. And we're resting. We're constantly resting as we claim these promises. So it's an experiential exercise for the present time. And notice, we who have believed enter that rest. So here's the mechanics. This is how we do it. It's done by faith. And it's done remarkably again and again and again and again. Every time we claim a promise, we're walking by faith. Okay? And it's different from getting saved, we who have believed. This is the experiential, we who every time we do believe. Big difference. And sadly, um, it's not brought across in the English. You have to recognize uh, an heiress participle is not a present participle. <laughs> And then once you figure out which participle it is, then you can identify the concept. So we who have believed is hoi pistusantis. And you say, praise God. That's an aorist. It's not a present tense. It is an aorist active participle. Used 15 times in the New Testament. It's in contrast to the present active participle. It's used 54 times in the New Testament. The present is much more common. The present is the one that speaks of our eternal life in Christ. That in the present, ha pistuon, the believer, is the positional one who is a believer eternally because his sins are forgiven and he's going to go to heaven when he dies and he has eternal life. Okay? So at that moment of your salvation, you become ha pistuon, you become the eternal believer with the present participle. For me, that was September 1973. For you, it was whenever. Whenever they gave you the gospel and you, you believed it, you heard it, you believed it, and you responded, you placed your faith in Christ. 
when you were transferred out of darkness into light, at that moment onward, you became hapus duon. You became the believer. And you can never lose that. And you only do it once, obviously, since you can never lose it. You only do it once. But the other, the aorist participle, you do again and again and again. You're constantly walking by faith. You're constantly believing God. Every time you're faced with a test and you claim a promise and uh, you claim um, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, and you walk by faith and you, you lay it up before the Lord, you give it to Him in prayer, and then you rest. <laughs> that's the aorist participle. Because that's, uh, that's not hapis duon, that's hapis duosantis. That's an aorist participle. And we do it over and over and over again, and we should constantly be claiming promises, constantly be believing, walking by faith, not by sight. And so in an aorist participle application, the significance of the aorist participle throughout here in Hebrews 3, where it's not a positional truth passage of being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. It is not a positional truth passage or context of being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but the moment-by-moment promise of rest and the mechanism of faith. It is the moment-by-moment promise of rest and the mechanism of faith. And so you realize you can be a believer that fails to believe the promises. You could be a believer positionally in Christ, but walking by sight instead of walking by faith. One of these, I do believe, help my unbelief applications, whereby you, you have the positional truth, eternal salvation, but at the moment, you've got a very weak faith that's struggling to trust in God for this particular test. And, and don't, be, don't feel like it's weird or that you're the only one this has ever happened to or that maybe you're at risk of going to hell when you die because somehow you've stopped believing and somehow you've stopped being saved. Recognize the two different contexts are separated. The positional reality is one thing and then the experiential moment-by-moment necessity to walk by faith. And so this, once, you, once you clearly delineate this, oh man, does this help a lot of applications in the Christian walk. You can separate positional from experiential and it blesses a lot of different things. But John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. We should uh, be confident. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, what happens if I go carnal and I start walking by sight again? Don't do it, but you haven't lost your salvation. You're still going to go to heaven when you die. You have eternal life. And so, we who believe, we who claim the promises on each testing occasion, we presently enter that rest. Now, not in the future or someday, I shall see him, I shall see him. No, it's not talking about going to heaven and being face to face with Jesus. It's talking about right here, right now, resting by faith, presently entering that rest. Significance of the present indicative is not the assurance of heaven after physical death. It is the present mental attitude of faith rest through any and every testing of life. And we have it in verse 3, verse 6, verse 10, verse 11. The emphasis on the present. 
Again, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. The author says he's there. He wants his readers to join him. We who have believed enter that rest. Verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's the biggest clue right there. In fact, that may be my favorite verse in all of Hebrews. Is Hebrews 4.10. The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. It's the definition of faith rest. It's the how-to. How did the Father rest on the first day seven ever? We'll, We'll look at that here in a moment. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. Present tense, right here, right now. What's stopping you? Walk by faith and you're there. But it takes diligence so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. If you go carnal, forget about God's rest. You're not walking by faith. You're walking by sight again. You're in carnality. So be diligent. Stay in fellowship. Confess your sins. Maintain short accounts. Maximize your time in fellowship. And then rest from your works as God did from His. Give it all to Him. He's the one working in and through you for His good pleasure. So entering into rest, this is a dominant theme. I hope everybody here can explain this to their coworkers and neighbors and friends and enemies and whatever, that, that especially if they're trying to convey a different idea of rest, if they're trying to convey the idea that rest is going to heaven when you die, or that rest is having spiritual maturity in the Christian way of life. Those are probably the most too common. Just stop them and say, well, you know what? We were taught that rest is a moment-by-moment aorist participle of faith. (laughs) Okay, It's a moment-by-moment claiming the promises, walking by faith, trusting God. So um, every occasion that comes about, here's a test, trust God. Faith rest. So that's the early chapters. Now, similar doctrine, but it's going to be taught from entering into the veil, same mechanism, confess your sins, be in fellowship, walk by faith. And you can enter within the veil the same way that you enter into rest. So the mechanism is the same. But the early chapters of Hebrews, the later chapters of Hebrews, stress entering within the veil. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. It's on the same basis though. Not being carnal, being in fellowship, confessing your sins. As, as long as you stay carnal, and we do, I know, we, we prolong it, we delay our confession, we decide, you know, sometimes it's, it's called the passing pleasures of sin. And sometimes we enjoy being carnal. And even though we know we should confess, we delay it a little bit, try to prolong the, the enjoyment. And all we're doing is adding to the discipline for when we finally do confess. But when you're carnal, you have no faith rest. And when you're carnal, you have no priestly function within the veil. You have neither entrance. You're still going to go to heaven when you die. You still have eternal life. You're still a believer in the present active participle, even if it's been ages since you were an aorist active participle, believer walking by faith. Trick question, not trick question, extra credit question. What's the application related to 
the unequally yoked marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If the unbelieving one departs, is it the positional or is it the experiential? Makes a big difference. All right, bring that back up Wednesday night if you want to. Um, entering within the veil. Hebrews 6. How are we doing on time? We might make it. Nope. <laughs> Hebrews 6.19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So if you're carnal and outside the veil, what kind of hope do you got? Because your living hope is inside the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So if you want to function in this living hope, in this priestly ministry, can't do it in carnality. You've got to enter within the veil. That's where he went. If the forerunner went there, why are you headed off over here? Follow the forerunner. In Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, the new and living way, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. These passages are saying the same thing. We're holding fast to our confidence. We're entering within the veil. So entering into rest, entering into veil, it means we're staying in fellowship. We're resting from our works as God rested from His. Resting from our works as God rested from His. I think some believers are under the impression that their faith resting because they prayed about it. But then they don't stop and, and sanctify anything. They don't bless anything. And they don't praise God for what God's doing. They prayed about it, and then they resume their human efforts to get something done. And that's not faith rest. God's at work in you to willing to do of His good pleasure. Let Him do the work. And by faith, watch Him do the work. And by faith, sanctify His work. Bless His work. Celebrate His work. Because this is what God did in Genesis 2-3. And by the way, after day seven, what did he do? He went back to work. So again, Hebrews 4.10, like I say, this may be my favorite verse. The one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as. That's the analogous link. That's the just as in the manner of as to the degree, in the nature of, after the pattern, as God did from His. So what did God do on day 7? What was that example of Genesis 3? I'm sorry, Genesis 2, 3. I'm glad you asked. He blessed and He sanctified. We could do the same thing, and we should do the same thing. Bless and sanctify. If we're going to enter into rest as he entered into rest, let's do what he did. Bless and sanctify. 
and uh, He blessed and sanctified the seventh day. We're going to bless and sanctify every day. Because that's day after day as long as it's called today. This day. I'm going to bless and sanctify this day and give glory to the Father for what the Father's doing. Because in it He rested from all His work which He had created and made. You know, He looked back and He saw that it was very good. The seventh day God contemplated His work, completed His work which He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He has done. And he saw that it was very good. Chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so he has this very good statement. There were other good statements in the, for the first six days. Most of them had good statements. Um, day 2 didn't have a good statement. We'll talk about that. But day 6, he goes back and he has an every day. All of this is very good. And then when he rests, he sanctifies and he blesses. That's what we got to do. We've got to sanctify and bless, and we have to observe God's goodness. Or we're not going to rest as he did. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So a blessing is a, is a statement of praise. Thank you, Lord, for this day. I'm going to praise this day and the work the Father's doing on this day. And I'm going to sanctify it. I'm going to sanctify, that's a setting apart, that's identifying for priestly service. I'm going to sanctify all that the Father's doing, whatever He wants to do today. And then I'm going to watch, and I'm going to pronounce my Father very good for all that He does. To will and to do of His good pleasure, He's going to work in me. Keeping this as a, at the forefront of our thinking, keeping this as a part of our prayer life and claiming the promises. So, Father, I've got a test. I've got a, it's a financial test. It's a health test. It's a family test. It's a, whatever it is. I'm just going to give it to the Lord and then I'm going to sanctify and bless this day. I'm going to watch what the Father chooses to do. And I'm going to stop feeling like it all depends on me to get something done and make it, fix it, make it right. I'm going to rest. I'm going to watch what the Father does. I'm going to praise the Father. And He might not answer the way I want him to answer. He might not heal the cancer. He might not take away the test. He might not provide financially. He might, whatever it might be, the answer might be the opposite of what I want. But it's the, it's what the, it's the work he's doing. And so I'm going to sanctify and bless this day and, and observe what the Father is doing. This is, this is my daily Sabbath rest. Finally then, as we're out of time, Point six, because we are believers in Christ, this is what it's about. It's an open and laid bare life. Judged by the word of God, standing confidently before the throne of grace. Chapter four ends with this in verses 12 through 16. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and not ashamed. We are open and laid bare in the church age. And the word of God is the standard of our, the judgment of our lives. And yet we're confident 
We're not hiding in shame. We're not wrapping fig leaves. We stand before the apostle and high priest of our confession and we draw near with confidence. Adam and Eve, we're hiding. We're drawing near. Ah, there's a lot of truth here, but I'm out of time. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the past three years and everything we've learned. And we've learned so much, we've forgotten some of it already, but we want to relearn it. We want to not forget it. We want to live it out. We want to be continuously walking by faith where we can aorist participle, the believing verb, all day, every day. Because we are the present participle, believing ones in Christ. I thank you for the rest that we have to stop doing things in the flesh and to watch you do the work. Thank you for the faith, rest, life. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.